0: January 19th, 2023. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Poke Run-In. And tonight, we will review and discuss the 2016 book, The Bow Theory of Christianity, by author Glenn Young. Now, this book is subtitled, Exploring the Impact of Human Sacrifice on Western Religion. Now, this subtitle and Young's insistence on equating Carthaginian child sacrifices with Palestinian Phoenician ritual practice is our only real complaint about this otherwise well-researched and strongly presented book. The author touches on all the bases explaining the differences between Yahwehism and the original worship of El and the Elohim. He discusses Ezra's rewrite of the Bible and even mentions Moses and Joseph as the possible leaders of the Hyksos. Although he is wrong in assuming that Sidon and Tyre practiced child sacrifice in classical times, he may be correct in assuming that Carthaginian practices might have influenced the Druids and the Nordics and, and later the witchcraft persecutions. It is unfortunate that he fails to consider that even though the Carthaginians were originally Phoenician, they, like the ancient Egyptians, were also African. This will be a very thought-provoking and controversial subject. Now, this book came out in 2016, and it's been on the market ever since. And why, why Jung hasn't gotten a hold of us and why we haven't gotten a hold of Jung, I don't know. This this thing was sort of a sleeper, and we just found out about it, and uh, and of course we we have reconstructed the ancient Phoenician religion. We well we've reconstructed it. We brought it up to date. We uh, uh, we present it. We pre- we present the uh, the ancient Phoenician uh, religion the way it would have been presented if it had survived all the way up into Elizabethan times, and you know. We present it kind of like a like a pageant at the Ren Fair. We do Elizabethan uh, kind of kind of almost Shakespearean Phoenician r- religion. So consequently, why Grand Young? He's had a lot of publicity on this. Got kind of websites and everything else. I, by the way, I tried to get a hold of him before we did this show, but you, you can't reach him. You can't reach him on the internet. I can't find him. So. If anybody tells him about this show and he hears it, tell him I do want to get a hold of him. Uh, But anyway, his idea that human sacrifice was a factor in ancient Phoenician religion is certainly true. Because, you know, it was a factor in ancient Greek religion, the Mycenaeans. You know, good Lord, the Mycenaeans sacrificed a young woman so they could have fair wind to sail to Troy. This, you know, is, is in the Iliad. It's all through the Bible, and one thing Young does in this book he tries to he tries to give the impression that the Yahwehists were against human sacrifice, yeah, they were, but they still, when they redacted the Bible, when Ezra rewrote the Bible, he left a lot of Hebrew human sacrifice in the Bible. There, there's lots of it in there, in fact, Young has on the cover of his of his book. A picture of a mosaic showing Isaac sacrificing his son. Now, right at the beginning, beginning of the book, he has his historical quotes justifying this uh, whole idea. And essentially, what he's saying is that Christianity, the idea that God, and in this case, it would it would be naturally will be hell because. Hell was Jesus' father, not Yahweh. But however, the Ezraites, the Deuteronomists have screwed the Bible up so bad that almost everybody thinks Yahweh was Jesus' father. But he wasn't. He was a demiurge. Of course, my gnosticism's showing when I say that. But anyway, um, the main thing that linchpin for Glenn's thesis is the idea that God, and of course you're supposed to assume Yahweh, but but actually God God gave his only begotten son that he might save the world from sin that's the whole thing and and you know actually uh uh he is right because we've all wondered how come Christianity was so appealing to so many pagans in Europe and why they converted so quickly well, it was because they'd already had the way paved by the Carthaginians, because the Carthaginians had colonies all over Southern Europe, as you know. And, and um, they literally influenced the pagan religions in Spain and, the, and in England. They influenced the Druids. And if you don't think they influenced the Druids, you just read Robert Graves' White Goddess. I mean, you, you'll see so much, so much Phoenician material in there. And... Uh, and yeah, we know we know from the uh, the Celtic uh, witchcraft coven that that I've belonged to for years. They have they have all all sorts of Phoenician lore that has come down to us. But as I say, it comes through Carthage, and Carthage is definitely African. So even though the Phoenicians founded Carthage. The Carthaginians were Africans. And Glenn doesn't mention the Egypt, ancient Egyptians hardly at all. But they had a lot of influence on the Phoenicians and on the Greeks, and they were African. And Wallace Budge, the authority on the, the ancient Egyptians, he, he mentions over and over and over again the African tradition, the African shamanic traditions that are present in ancient Egypt. And one of the things that Jung does not mention is that the god Osiris, who was was just as much a precursor of Jesus as Baal was, Osiris was responsible for keeping the ancient Egyptians out of cannibalism. Osiris supposedly outlawed cannibalism in ancient Egypt. And the Christian Eucharist and sacrifice and everything else, that's almost a cannibalistic act and you find cannibalism in ancient Greece and of course the ancient Greeks were very much related to the Phoenicians now let me read the ball theory cornerstone quotes repariator evangelica chapter 10 book 4 eusebius 320 ce but attributed by the greek writer quoting the ancient source from from 1200 bce Of course, this is Sancho Neato. For Cronos, whom the Phoenicians call Il, or El, and who after his death was deified and instated in the planet which bears his name, Saturn, when King had a nymph of the country called Anabaret, and an only son, who on that account is styled Eud, For so the Phoenicians still call an only son. And when great dangers from the war beset the land, he adorned the altar and invested his son with the emblem of royalty and sacrificed him. Well, now that's the theology of the Phoenicians, Sancho Neato. Again, the actual date's unknown, but um, stated to be somewhere around 1200 B.C., B.C.E., before the Common Era. Definitely... It's in circulation in the 4th century, the Common Era. It was the custom among the ancients at times of great calamity in order to prevent the ruin of all for the rulers of the city or a nation to sacrifice to the avenging deities the most beloved of their children as the price of redemption. They who were devoted to this purpose were offered mystically. And then there's the New Testament Gospel of John, written sometime in the late first mid-century CE, common era. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He does not believe he has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, Mythmaker Paul and the Invention of Christianity by Hayam Mackelby, mid-late 20th century writer. The Eucharist implies a sacrifice of Jesus as an atonement for mankind. Such a concept of the death of Jesus cannot be reconciled with any variety of Judaism, for it amounts to the reinstatement of human sacrifice, which for Judaism was an anathema. Indeed, a large part of the Hebrew Bible constitutes a campaign against human sacrifice. That's not true. The implication of the Eucharist that salvation is to be obtained through Jesus' death and the shedding of his blood is thus A Radical Departure from Judaism and a Return to the Pagan Concepts of Atonement. Well, that's his opinion. Okay. And he has another one here from Putting Away Childish Things, The Virgin Birth, The Empty Tomb, and Other Fairy Tales by Uta Rumpke Heinemann, 20th century writer. One, the Bible is not the word of God but the word of man. That's true. That God does exist in three persons is the imagination of men. Jesus is man and not God. Mary is the mother of Jesus and not the mother of God. God created heaven and earth, and hell is a product of human fantasy, and the devil, original sin does not exist, and a bloody redemption on the cross is a pagan slaughtering of animals based on a model from the religious Stone Age. And the golden rule supposedly created by Hillel Is born in Babylon in 110 BCE. He's one of Ezra's kind. Tradition holds that he lived for 120 years. What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah and the rest of the explanation. Now, the idea we get from the selection of quotes that Young uses is that he's trying to present some sort of a Jewish point of view. Actually, a number of the things he's saying, he's saying that the Ezraites were against him in sacrifice. Yeah, they when they rewrote the Bible, they did have that. Now, by the way, Jung definitely goes along with the idea that Ezra, that Ezra rewrote the Bible. He had, a large part of the book deals with that, the fact that Yahweh was a very minor God. And, and uh, he doesn't deal with King Solomon at all. Yahweh was a very minor god, and the Babylonians in exile led by Ezra, they were sponsored by the Persian Empire to come back and build the temple and then try to convince all the the Israelites that were living in Palestine at the time, Canaanites, try to convince them, Babylonians that, that had come back with all this Persian money and all this Persian power behind them, try to convince the rest of the uh, Israelites that they had once had Palestine as their promised land. And this whole invasion of Palestine with Joshua and all, you know, Joshua at the Battle of Jericho and all that, that that's all Ezra's propaganda. They wrote that to try to convince the rest of the Canaanites that they were the lost host of Israel. And they built that temple the second temple. They built that temple to control all of Palestine, basically as a client state for the Persian Empire. They were a satellite. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read his, I'm going to start reading his multi-layered preface at the beginning. So you've got to get an idea of what he's trying to present. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a strange prince to act, and monarchies to behold the swelling scene. But pardon, and gentleness all, for your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishments of many years into an hourglass. Henry V, Act 1, Scene 1. Okay, Shakespeare recognized how difficult it is to bring a broad, long-ranging history of years into a short, concise, and manageable event, such as a two- to three-hour play. I am faced with perhaps a more daunting task than any Shakespeare history play, since I must try to address thousands of years of complex religious and political history, often a history that is incorrectly known by the potential readers to a manageable, readable, and understandable document. Now, let me make a comment on that. I think Glenn Young is originally a tech writer. I think he's a tech writer. And the reason why I think he's a tech writer is the tech writers have a sort of a protocol, an outline that they follow. And when they write a technical book, a manual or whatever, the formula is – Tell them what you're going to tell them, and then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. That's the formula for writing a technical manual. That's the way Glenn Young wrote this book. He spends the first third of the book telling us what he's going to tell us. Then he spends the second third of the book telling us what he's going to tell us. And then he does the last part of the book telling us what he told us. And I'm encouraging you, if you're interested, to read it, especially his uh, Grace Stephen Michael Beeson, who is interested in it. Yeah, plow your way through it, uh, worshipful. But but still, be aware that this thing is multi-layered, and it's on the on the tech manual formula. Now let's go on with this multi-layered preface. I must do something that is considered in education far harder than teaching. I must unlearn you before I can teach you. I must try to present not just the complexities of a family feud, like Shakespeare's histories, but the complexities of the rise and fall of major cultures and religions, from an angle few have considered. However, for the sake of truth, and for the Exploration of ideas. Once more, once more, dear friends, into the breach, you know, like Henry said. So please join me as we go often on a confused pathway through the basic concepts of the ball theory, supported as best I can. Let me point out it shouldn't be the ball theory. It's the elf, it's the Elohim. And he doesn't mention the Book of Enoch at all, but Enoch is entirely Canaanite. Jumping over times, turning the accomplishments of many years, in this case many, many centuries, into an hourglass, or in this case, in this format of of a book. First warning, this is a self-published book. Yeah, he's put all this together. And I'm going to say something about, about this book while we're at it. It is filled with references to university monographs by professors, and he's got almost 100 references to these papers written by by college professors on this subject, but he doesn't have a bibliography. He just has them scattered throughout the book, and one of the things we're going to have to do with this book, and I'm... uh, Kind of nudging his grace here. One of the things we're going to have to do is go through and find all these academic references that he has, and we're going to have to make up our own bibliography because these, all these these articles that he's talking about, but a lot of them I'd like to read. And I know, and I know uh, Michael Beasley would like to read them, and and we'd all like to read them. But but he didn't put them in a the bibliography; he just scattered them out throughout the book. And as it, and as I say, it's self-published. So, for that reason, we can forgive him. Let me continue with his preface here. First warning, this is a self-published book. It's a great big, great big 400-page paperback. And you can imagine how difficult it is for me to sit here and read it. I put this volume out for consideration after years of effort to try to get it right. I cannot tell you exactly the number of drafts I have tried. Over a number of years, I have attempted many different versions in efforts to provide the story of Baal, Judaism, and Christianity and child sacrifice in a complete and coherent fashion, in a length that is popular. I simply have lost count of the variations I've developed. I know it's nothing like like the number of efforts Edison made to find a filament, needed for the light bulb, but at times I felt almost like that. In addition, I do this effort as a relatively poor writer and and somewhat famous dyslexic, too, and almost a relatively poor man. Therefore, you will undoubtedly find many errors of grammar and grammatic and referencing because, for the most part, this is a well-edited book with some professional oversight. Please forgive all the technical writing mistakes you find. Of course, not the efforts in facts, but only the the errors of punctuation. So let's skip a number of apologies here. In addition, I am not an academic with lots of young, brilliant students willing to provide the labor for both an index and a complete bibliography. At this point, I will provide no index and will add an incomplete listing of non-web sources I used for reference. After all, I am a relatively poor man, and this is a self-published, self-edited book. Okay, now, that said, and be aware that reading this book is not going to be easy, but those of you who are interested, there's there's a wealth of information in here that he's gathered and a wealth of references. But um, let me just point out some of the things that he has managed to deal with. And talking about Ezra's rewrite of the Bible, we have been discussing that and extrapolating from that for longer than Jung has been uh, working on this book. And why, as I say, why Jung wasn't aware. Here here he was going on and on and on about, about Phoenician religion, and he didn't realize that there are Phoenician religions that have been resurrected. Ours, And of course, then there's also our colleague, Karim el uh over in Lebanon, who has written uh, Pythagoras, the mathematician, and the Phoenician Kabbalah. I haven't gotten a hold of Karim about this book yet, but I certainly am going to inform him of it and, and make sure he gets a copy of it to look at it. And because this idea that in classical times, the Phoenicians over on the Levantine coast... That's Sidon and Tyre, that they were still practicing child sacrifices. There's only one factual reference that he has to this, and that he does not back it up, and he doesn't cite the source or anything. He just says that Alexander Alexander the Great, after he vanquished the Phoenicians, that he forbade, and of course the Macedonian took over the whole area after that. That he forbade human sacrifice, that he outlawed. It. Now, this sounds very, very good, and very, very, very solid. But there's no reference to this quote, no reference to it. And let me point out that Alexander, Alexander destroyed Tyre, and crucified over five thousand Phoenicians in Tyre. Crucified them and destroyed the whole city and sold all the rest of the people into slavery. So who is he to be outlawing child sacrifice? I don't think he ever did. And the reason why, you know, you kind of want to ask the question, why did Alexander do this? Well, Alexander, he knew the Phoenicians were very, very, Important to Greek mythology, and that they were one of the sources of greek mythology and he, and he, he, he knew he knew, he knew that you know he had, he'd been a, a student of Aristotle himself, and Aristotle knew that Pythagoras, the great father of Greek philosophy, that Pythagoras was a Phoenician, and so Alexander the Great came marching down past Tyre, which is a city on an island, it's a fortified island. And he halted his army beside, across from Tyre, and he sent a message to the priests on Tyre. He said, I would like to come across and make a sacrifice in your temple to Melkart, who we worship as Hercules. That shows you how the connection between the Greeks and the Phoenicians. That's where Hercules came from, and that's where Aphrodite came from, from the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians had. The temple entire, the temple to Baal Malkard, that was the Lord of the city, because all Baal means and Glenn does point this out, all Baal, the word Baal means Baal, all it means is Lord. It means Lord in Aramaic or Phoenician or Hebrew. And in fact, they still call a Kabbalistic rabbi who was considered a, a real expert is referred to as a Baal Shem Tub, a Lord of of the name. And so Baal is just a word. It 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 just means Lord. And it could mean divine Lord or or a or a feudal Lord or a political Lord. It could mean it it just means Lord. The over God of the Phoenicians, of course, and the original God of the Bible what and and Jesus' father was El Elohim and that was the plural, and they were the angels. When Ezra uh, rewrote Genesis, he was very sloppy. They, they try to make make it out that, that uh, Yahweh is grooming over the Garden of Eden and all that. That's not true. That was, that was hell. Anyway, back to Alexander. Alexander said, I want to make a sacrifice. I want to sacrifice to baal Melkart, whom we worship as Hercules. Actually, what he really wanted to do was he wanted to get inside that temple because in the temple they had the whole zodiac, the circle of the beasts, And before Alexander arrived, it was the age of Taurus, and the zodiac began at Taurus. And after Alexander destroyed the temple and Tyre, that's when the age of Ares began. In honor of Alexander's atrocity, they refused. They said, We can't let you into the temple, but what we will do is come across and we will build an altar on the beach and we will assist you in making your sacrifice. And Alexander was so insulted, at least he so claims, that he built a causeway, a bridge, literally another island, like a peninsula. He built a causeway across the tire, marched his army over there and slaughtered everybody and crucified 5,000 of them and sold the rest of them into slavery. So I don't think that he pronounced anything about child sacrifice. If that's the case, show me your source on that, Glenn. I really would like to see it. But you may ask, why did Alexander hate the Phoenicians so much? Why would he do something like this? Well, they had so much to do with Greek culture, and so many Greek philosophers were connected with them. Why would Alexander do this? Well, the reason was... That the Phoenicians supplied Xerxes with ships to invade Greece. Remember Thermopylae and when the Spartans rallied the Greeks to expel the Persians? Well, that was an invasion which the Phoenicians cooperated with the Persians. And this is why the Greeks hated the Phoenicians at that point. And that's why Alexander did this terrible thing that he did. Now, let me point something out about Christianity and the cross. The cross, as a symbol of Christianity, the cross was not adapted by the Catholic Church until about 300 A.D. I know this sounds almost unbelievable. You think the cross was a part of Christianity from the beginning, but it was not. The great sacrament of Original Christianity was marriage. Marriage was the sacrament, not the cross. In fact, a lot of early Christians didn't even think that Jesus died on the cross. And then those who did were Gnostics who believed he wasn't really physically here anyway. You know, he was a spirit. So this whole business of Christianity being, like the Buddhists say, the Christians worship a god on a torture rack. This whole thing is really kind of a later insertion. Anyway, as we get further on into the book, we get more and more of his uh, backing up the idea that Ezra rewrote the Bible. I know that this is a very controversial subject, but the evidence for it is overwhelming. For instance, King Solomon, when we originally started writing about King Solomon and started practicing Solomonic magic, we were of the opinion, that Solomon was a king who was torn between two gods. He was torn between the gods of the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, El, and Baal, and Astarte, and Yahweh. We assumed that, uh, that he was trying to walk a tightrope between these two religions. That's what we assumed. And that's the way the Bible is written. But that's Ezra's rewrite. There was no Yahweh presence in Canaan, in Palestine, at the the time of Solomon. If he existed, King Solomon was an El-worshipping, Baal worshiping Astarte-worshipping pagan. That's who he was. We simply cannot overemphasize the importance of Ezra's rewrite. Also, there's another thing about the original Canaanites that Glenn does touch on, and that is the whole Moses story. Now, if you take the Egyptian version of the Exodus, it's entirely different than the the Bible version of the Exodus. According to the Egyptians, the so-called Hebrews were actually the remnants of the Hyksos. And the Hyksos had been a Canaanite warrior tribe that had invaded Egypt and actually conquered Egypt and for 400 years these shepherd kings who we suspect were the original hebrews these shepherd kings lorded it over the egyptians they killed the egyptian sacred animals they treated the egyptians like dirt the egyptians hated them they were overlords and finally the egyptian people rose up against the hyksos and overthrew them and pushed them all up into into what we The Bible calls the land of Goshen. Land of Goshen, my grandmother used to say. Anyway, uh, Moses, according to the Egyptians, Moses was a priest of Osiris. It was a Hyksos. And he gathered together all of these uh, remnants of the Hyksos that they had finally overthrown. They weren't slaves. They They were a disenfranchised warrior class that had been charged, but they were thrown out. The Egyptians had a revolution and threw them out. And the Egyptians got the Ethiopian army to come and help them, and they drove these hyksos out of Egypt across the Red Sea. They drove them out. And if any Egyptian chariots were lost in a tide wash in the Red Sea, well, maybe they were, but the Egyptians don't mention that at all. They just mentioned that they drove Moses and his group of people. And by the way, not only did they drive out all the Hyksos, but they drove out all the lepers, and all the undesirables uh, in Egypt were forced out along with the remnants of the Hyksos. And quite probably they were that remnant that eventually came back to Canaan. But they certainly, there's no evidence that they... They knocked down the walls of Jericho, or they burned down Ai, or anything like. That. There's no evidence of Jacob Joshua's or his his conquest. No evidence at all. Anyway, this book promotes the main theory, and this is the one that we need to we need to really look at strongly because he may be right. The Carthaginians, they may very well have have practiced human sacrifice. it's a lot of good evidence that they did. Of course, there's also a lot of Roman propaganda against them. The Romans treated the Carthaginians sort of like tabloid Satanists. They made me eat my baby, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of that was Roman propaganda. They hated the Carthaginians. Well, it's very possible that the Carthaginians did practice human sacrifice and did sacrifice their children. And there are some reports of course, from Romans, obviously, that wealthy Carthaginian families, according to the Romans, wealthy Carthaginian families paid poorer people to donate children so they could sacrifice them instead of their own. But that's all from Roman writers. That, that's not from, no, nobody from Carth- Carthage ever put anything like that down. Now, however, we got to remember the Carthaginians were Africans. They were originally founded by Dido, Phoenician princess originally founded Carthage, but it really was an African kingdom. And the ancient Egyptians were influenced by the Africans. And Wallace Budge says that over and over again in his books on ancient Egypt, that Egyptian religion is African. The animal-headed gods and all that, that's all African shamanic. Anyway, the same thing may Maybe maybe applied to Carthage because the Carthaginians they were the only people that we we know of ever ever to uh, except maybe the Atlanteans they were the only people to domesticate African elephants. Their army used African elephants for for heavy cavalry, and an African ele- elephant is a wild animal. I mean, they're not like Indian elephants; they are very dangerous. And yet the Carthaginians had a huge a huge, heavy cavalry uh, contingent of uh, African elephants. In fact, I remember those Carthaginian elephants. They got all the way over into Persia too, because I remember I was leader of cavalry uh, in one of the Scottish Rite degrees. I was the leader of leader of Persian cavalry, and I had and I had a large number of elephants. And I even got myself an elephant goad so I could portray the leader of the elephant cavalry anyway, what Glenn is proposing, and he may very well be right, that the Carthaginians influenced the Druids. You know, the Druids were their wicker men. I'm sure we've all seen the wicker men at one time or another. The Druids used to take prisoners and sometimes even their own people and send them as messengers to the gods. And the Druids would take their prisoners and put them in these great big huge wicker frameworks and burn them alive. And maybe they, they were influenced by the Phoenicians in this because even before Carthage was founded, the Phoenicians were mining tin in Britain. And they had colonies all over southern France and and, and Spain. And it's very probable that they did influence European culture and The Greeks practiced human sacrifice, as we know, because, you know, the Mycenaeans, they they killed that girl to give them good winds to go across to Troy when they had their Trojan War. And also we know that there is a direct connection between Beowulf's Geats and Homer's Greeks and the Achaeans. A direct connection, linguistic and every other way. And the Scandinavians were practicing human sacrifice. And they were probably getting it from the same source. And that would be maybe, maybe Carthaginian also, but could, could possibly be very, very, very early Phoenician, very early, but not in classical times. In classical times, when Pythagoras was alive and all of that, the, the Phoenicians were not sacrificing their children at that time. That's just, they just weren't. However, the idea that God sacrificed his son that does go back to Sancho and the so so that is true. And also, something Glenn does not mention that the Mexicans, Mexico, they converted to Christianity very very quickly because they had a they had a very bloody religion where they sacrificed people, prisoners, and even members of their own family. And Mexico to this day, they have fanatical people. Catholics down in Mexico who get themselves nailed up to crosses, and that goes on even today. And also, he's suggesting that the witchcraft trials, burning the, the witches alive, was a morph. That that was a morphing of the of the uh, of the of the sacrifice uh, of the family members or the sacrifice of the prisoners or whatever. That that was a morph. They had to burn somebody, so let's burn the witches. He never mentions the, the Albigensian crusade at all. But the Roman Catholics. They burned the Cathars, they burned the Cathars of Monsignor, they burned them alive. And they burned them alive right, right outside the castle. And he says that this was a hangover from you know, from the from the Carthaginians. And he and he may be right. I'm not gonna completely underwrite the idea, but but he but he has a good idea. In this. Anyway, this is a very, very interesting work, and you got to dig the source material out of it, and, and we're not going to do it for you, so, so uh, if you want to get the book, go ahead and get the book, but be aware that he's really wrong about Phoenician religion, because we're not sacrificing children anymore, that's, that's, just, that's just not happening, and yet we still do believe that El is the main father of Jesus. And also, Gren does not mention the Nicene document at all. You know, the document that describes the dying gods and eventually evolving into Jesus. That was a Gnostic document, and he doesn't mention that at all. But the book, otherwise, is very valuable for having a lot of information that otherwise wouldn't get out there, and so... I strongly advise those of you who are interested in this subject to get a copy of it and dig out the source material and check it out. And I still want to know if anybody gets a hold of Glenn. I want your source on that Alexander the Great thing. Anyway, next week we're going to take on another book that sort of blindsided us, and that's the one about the Roman Flavian family that created Catholic Christianity. And this guy who wrote this book doesn't mention the Nicene document or the Valentinians, the Gnostics, at all. And yet he's got this story. So we'll take on that book next week. And so until then, Happy New Year and good magic.